I'll do that. Well, thank you all for showing up again for another youth service. I know we've done quite a few of these now, but every time I feel like we're getting a little bit better, if only a little bit. I promise I won't sing any while I'm preaching. Y'all are, y'all are done with that. Brother Dennis, can you pull up Matthew 9, 36 through 38? That's going to be our word today if you'd stand up for the reading of it. We're going to cover a well-known story today, but hopefully I can take it in a way that you've never quite seen it. So Matthew 9, verses 36 through 38 read, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. So that's what I wish to preach to you today on the Lord of the harvest. If you would pray with me. Lord, in Jesus' name, we know that you are the beginning of knowledge and understanding, Lord. And through fear of you, we achieve wisdom. Lord, instruct us today and let your word guide our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. So, I wish to open today, as I said, with a well-known story. I'm sure that many of you would know where I was going if I simply said I want to talk about the woman that Jesus talked to at the well. Today, however, I want to take it past the part that we normally stop at and go into a little deeper side of things, maybe a different outlook. See, you can follow along if you'd like, but I'm going to skip around a bit, so don't, don't feel like you have to pick up your Bibles just yet. We begin in verse 5 of the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, which reads, Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. And it was about the sixth hour... There cometh the woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Now, if you've heard or read this tale before, you know that this request was a big deal. I'm sure you've heard it preached that Jesus was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. And he was asking a Samaritan for a drink. You see, back in these days, the Jews were a bit of an elitist culture. They were the chosen ones of God. And so they looked down on the Gentiles, the unchosen, the children that weren't of Abraham. They detested them and saw them almost as lower than themselves. So for Jesus to even associate himself with this Sumerian woman was a huge cultural faux pas. He, however, was not too awful scared of what people might think, so he's decided to sit down and chat with her even though most people like him would probably just pass by her without a second thought. We, uh, picking back up our story, it reads, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knowest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou would have asked him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman said unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence hast thou drawn this living water? This lady, you see, she doesn't, she doesn't quite get what Jesus is trying to say here. He keeps talking about this living water nonsense that he's got, but he doesn't have a bucket. The whale's really deep. Where is he getting this water from? They're in the middle of the desert. She's probably starting to think that he's a bit crazy. But as you'll see in a moment, this conversation isn't really about H2O or water as we know it. You see, Jesus was really good at turning talks about the natural into talks about the supernatural. We see it throughout scripture. 
he talked to people about what they knew and turned it towards the kingdom of God. You can see this when he was around farmers, he would talk about farming. When he was around fishermen, he talked about fishing. When he's at a well, he talked about water. However, he was always talking about the kingdom of God. No matter who he was talking to or where he was, he was always talking about the kingdom. He was always witnessing and testifying to any who would listen, and he got them to listen, as we see here, by talking about things they already knew about. So Jesus answered and said unto her, the verse reads, Whoever, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be, on him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Bam. In one second, he asks the lady for a drink of water. And the next, he's going on about the Holy Ghost. That's just how Jesus liked to do it. You hook him with the weather like, hey, you know, it's a bit stormy outside, probably going to rain. And then you, bam, you slip right into, oh, you think it's windy today? You should have seen the day of Pentecost. It was howling out there, man. That's how, and it seems funny to us, but that's how Jesus did it. He would talk about the normal, but turn it then to the kingdom of God. But you see, the lady doesn't quite get the turn yet. She, hasn't, she doesn't quite understand where he's going with this. He thinks that he's still talking about actual water. She's like, you have water that would make me never thirst again? Then give me some of that. Why don't you just hand some of that over to me? Then I won't have to come down to this well every day and get myself some water. But he tells her that this isn't, this isn't really about water. He leads off with telling her that he knows she's adulterous. And that she's been married to five different men, but never divorced any of them. He then goes on to talk about the kingdom of God to come. And he eventually reveals himself to her as the Messiah, the Savior of the Jews. Now, we usually stop here to make a point of this. Jesus, the Messiah, Savior of the Jews, goes and reveals himself not to the high priest, not to the Levites, not to the people in the temple at Jerusalem, not even to the Jews, but to a Samaritan and much less a Samaritan woman who had been sinning all her life. It's here that we start to see that Jesus' plan, this new kingdom, it's not just for the Jews anymore. It's for everybody. Anyways, after he says all this, the disciples get back to the, from the grocery store with lunch, and the lady goes off to tell everybody what just happened and just who's hanging out at the well. Picking up in verse 28, it reads, The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city. And saith to the man, Come, see a man which told me all the things that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat that you know not of. Therefore, said the disciples to one another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? So this lady has gone off to get her friends and say, Hey, come, come meet the Master, come meet the Messiah. He's over here by the well. The disciples, the disciples are eating lunch. That's all they can think about. They just went to the store to get meat. They come back, and they're all eating, and they ask Jesus to eat too. And he says, no, I'm good. I've got, I've got meat that you know not of. Where they're like, who brought him meat? Who's this secret meat thief that's coming and bringing Jesus food? We just went out to buy meat. What are you doing getting food from someone else? But what they don't understand, just like the woman earlier, is that Jesus isn't talking about natural food. You see, Jesus has started talking about the supernatural again. We see this in the next couple of verses. Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye there are a few months, or there are yet four months, and cometh the harvest? Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already with harvest. Uh, so our, our hunch was right. He wasn't talking about regular food, but what was he talking about? And what's that harvest stuff about? 
Well, the meat thing kind of makes some sense, I guess. He's saying that he, doesn't, he isn't here for the food. He doesn't care about actual lunch right now. It's more important to him the need that he really needs to satisfy is doing God's will in this city. But what is the will of God for this city? What does God want with a bunch of Samaritans? And why in the world is he talking about a field, white fields of harvest in the middle of winter? Well, unlike his other food analogies in this chapter, he doesn't explain this one outright. The meaning, however, can be discovered easily enough in the rest of the chapter. Jumping to verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him. For the saying of the woman which testified, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he bowed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. You see, Jesus has been building a parallel all throughout this chapter between the spiritual and the physical. He starts with the refreshing, life-giving water of the well which is paralleled with the living water of the Holy Ghost, which brings refreshing to the soul and gives everlasting life. He then moves to the sustaining meat, which he parallels with doing the will of God. Though he may have been hungry and needed food, he knew that his largest hunger and his biggest need was a desire to increase God's kingdom. Finally, he reaches this image of the white field of crops. This white field of barley, of, of ripe wheat and barley. You see, the largest row crops, or the, the main row crops planted in Israel were wheat and barley. They used them to make bread, which was a staple of Israeli food. Much like farmers today who often grow a winter crop or winter wheat crop in between the rows to keep the rows from, ero- or the rows from eroding, Jews or Hebrews in the day grew these crops in between the rows. They grew wheat and they grew barley, and they would plant it in the, in the uh, fall and harvest it in the spring. Um, living where we do, I'm sure you've seen this, this image of a, of a ripe wheat field after, you know, months and months and months of growing. It starts as a little green sprout, and it gets taller and taller and taller until finally it starts to turn that golden brown color, and you know that things are getting right. And then the wheat heads come out, and they're just as wide as the day is long, and you know that that field is ready for the harvest. You know, that farmer's got to hurry up and get out and get in his harvester, hop in his John Deere or his case, double H, or whatever he needs, and get out there and harvest that crop before it goes bad. So you know that this image, this image of a wheat field, I'm sure you're all really familiar with it. See, harvest time has always been a time for celebration. For the generation that came before us, or the generations that came before us, it was the one of time of plenty. It was the one time of the year that food was abundant and that it was fresh. It was time for feasting and commemorating the hard work of the farmers that had worked to bring another year's worth of food to the village. It is this tradition that brings us the holidays we all love, the big feasting holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas. You can tell I love them better than all of you do. But uh, the Feast of Pentecost, in fact, was actually known also as the Feast of the Harvest because it was the feast that came right after the harvesting of the wheat. It's where they offered the first fruits of the wheat harvest to God. That's uh, old school ties for you. But it wasn't spring when Jesus began talking about the harvest. It wasn't the time of the harvest when Jesus talks about this white field. Jesus himself said that the earthly harvest season was still four months away. So if they harvested around April, that puts our story sometime around December or early January, right smack dab in the middle of winter. Now, winter was much warmer than Israel, in Israel than it is here. Their average January temperature is about in the mid-50s, which is about 10 degrees 
uh, warmer than ours, but seasons tend to hold the same overtones, the same connotations everywhere in the world. Spring is all about new birth. You can all think of the Easter egg and uh, new flowers and new buds and new blooms. Summer is all about joy and fun. Autumn is a time of sadness and a transition into winter. And finally, winter is a season of death. Trees often lay dormant. A lot of plants lose their leaves. Animals often go into hibernation. Some of them disappear completely from the forests. So it looks almost as if the world has been stripped bare and left barren and dead and desolate. This is what winter's like. But while everyone else was looking at the physical climate of winter, everyone else in Judea saw winter was around. God was looking not to the physical climate, but to the spiritual one. He didn't see the same shortening days and darkening nights, the incre- or decrease in temperature. Rather, he looked to the heavens and saw the budding of spring. A new kingdom was being warmed, and new life was being birthed in a new church. Spring was here, and with it, the harvest season. We return to this question we have at hand. Why was the Messiah, Savior of the Jewish faith, in a Samaritan town, on the wrong side of the tracks, proclaiming his deity to an adulterous woman, whom most Jews would have stoned for breaking the law? We can get a glimpse of his reasoning in Matthew 9, 36 through 38 which we read at the beginning of our uh, scripture today, but I'll read it again for you. It reads, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherds. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore to the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. You see, unlike those disciples who accompanied him, Jesus looked upon the city and saw not a den of sinners, but a field heavy laden with fruit and ready for the harvest. So he went to them and taught them of the coming kingdom, making disciples out of the people that no other Jew would have given the time of day. Because when he looked at them, he didn't see their race or their social status or their economic status. He saw souls in pain and agony who had no shepherd to guide him. He saw the revival of spring when everyone else felt only the oppression of winter. Because of his love and openness to them, he made many of them to believe. Later, just before his ascension, he gave his disciples a mission. You see, Acts 1 and 8 reads, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come unto you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So after the disciples received the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost, we all know that story, they went out and started all these churches, and they started in Jerusalem, and they moved to Judea. I can say some words some days, but not all words all days. And eventually, they moved to Samaria. But what do they find in Samaria? They don't go to Samaria and do like Judea, where they find a a nation full of people that never really heard of this Jewish thing. They don't really know who God is. But they go to Samaria and they find this city full of people who are all like, yeah, we know that Jesus guy. We talked to him that one day. He was down at the well. He was like, I know what you've done your whole life. And I know what you've done your whole life. We know he's God. And so there was a base, a a prime city in the church, or a prime city in Samaria for the church to start in. Jesus laid the foundations of the church in Samaria before anyone even knew there was going to be a church. And so Jesus looked upon this field that everybody saw as empty and barren and in the middle of winter, and he saw a harvest. Because of this, souls were forever saved in Samaria, 
Because he saw the harvest that was ready, and he taught his disciples to see the same. You see, Jesus taught those who followed him to witness to anyone who'd listen. He told them to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. Because of this, the first century church was characterized by growth. Many scriptures cited as growing and multiplying daily. So why is it that we, the same church that was born on the day of Pentecost, sometimes find ourselves caught up in what seems to be a winter season of dormancy and hibernation? Why is it that at times we feel like there's no growth, that no harvest is coming in? God himself said in our scripture that the harvest is truly plenteous. So where is it? You see, the problem, church, isn't with the harvest, for it truly is plenteous. I'm coming to a quick end if the musicians would come. You see, we live in the ultimate harvest season. There are seven and a half billion people on the planet. I can't even stress how big that number is. It is insane. Scientists believe that there are more than one twentieth, or that more than one twentieth of the total human population that's ever lived, everybody who's ever died and lived, is one twentieth of them is walking on the world today. One twentieth of them are alive. We have one twentieth of the human race right now living in our time and in our time and era. And so we look at that and we say only 30% of those people are even Christians. And only a quarter of the Christians are evangelical. And even a smaller number of that have truth. And I'm not trying to depress you or overwhelm you with these numbers of just the amount of people in this world who need God. But what I'm trying to show you is that billions of people are scattered. And like the Bible said, they are just sheep having no shepherd and they with no God to turn to for salvation. See, the problem, church, isn't with the harvest. It's with the laborers. Yes, Jesus said that the harvest was plenteous, but he also said that the laborers are few. You see, church, there are plenty of people in this church and in the church at large who have decided to live and do right. Plenty of Christians have dedicated themselves to prayer and Bible reading. Many of us are trying to perfect our own lives in an attempt to live up to this lofty, uh, the lofty ideals of our inheritance. But there's more to being a follower of Jesus than just personal growth, if you would stand with me. See, not only do we need to grow individually, but we must also grow as a church body. Sometimes we get so caught up in ourselves and in our own struggles and our own lives and overcoming our own problems that we forget we have a mission, we have a purpose to fulfill, we have something that we're called to do in this world. We are to take the whole gospel to the whole world and witness to the far corners of the earth. You see, church, we are the witnesses to Lake City, Arkansas. To truly be disciples, we have to be harvesters. No, I'm not saying that the church is dead if it isn't having a hundred soul revival every weekend, but like any living thing, the church must grow. No, we aren't supposed to go out and hand out flyers and knock on doors so that we can have big numbers for a Sunday night scoreboard. But we have to realize what we're doing here. We're playing for keeps. If you want your family or you want the Lord of the harvest to send somebody to save your family, or if you want somebody to send or God to send somebody to save your friends or your coworkers or your neighbors, the people who live on your street or your block or in your city, the thing is he already did. He sent you. We are the church for this town. We are the witnesses for these people. God put you where you are right now to fulfill his perfect plan. Jesus isn't here in the flesh to go walk down to the center and minister them, to minister to the broken and the downtrodden. But he sent us to be his hands and his feet. He sent us to work the harvest. We live in the latter days, the days of the harvest. 
And we need to start acting like it. Because we don't have forever, church. The end is coming, and the fields that are not harvested will eventually be scorched and barren. We must act now and act as workers in the field and workers in the harvest before it's too late and the crops are ruined. So these altars are open to you. If you'd come and dedicate yourself to be a worker in the harvest, to serve in the field and to find those lost souls that Jesus would have talked to, to find those people that everyone else would turn away from because you're to be Jesus to them. They don't have a Jesus to look to unless you are there, or you show them Jesus and you point them to him. In Jesus.